This is a Boardwalk Audio podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Dumb Nerds podcast, a show where funny people come on to talk about a smart topic they consider themselves to be an amateur expert in. And today I have on the very funny, the great Alex Berg, and we're going to talk about consciousness. Yes. Alex Berg is a teacher, improviser, performer at the Upright Citizens Brigade. He was one of my teachers. He's very awesome, super fun, and very nerdy when it comes to science. He's the host of Science Time, a show that if you're in the LA area, you got to check out. Keep your eye out for it. You can find out when upcoming Science Time shows are if you follow Alex Berg on Twitter at ActuallyBerg. And today's podcast is brought to you by CostumesForLess.com. That's right. Halloween is right around the corner, so you got to get your costume. And why uh, go to a, a Halloween store and try and find parking and then be around a bunch of people and then get out of the costume that you want? It's no fun. But if you go to CostumesForLess.com, boom. They'll have what you're looking for. You can get a great price on it. And also, you can get free shipping on your Costumes for Less order by going to BoardWalkAudio.com slash costumes. Consciousness. Why? Why are we talking about it? Uh, because it's one of the biggest mysteries ever. That's right. Scientists, philosophers, all the great thinkers, they don't... They don't know. They don't know what is consciousness, why, how it's happening, why we got it, where it's located. It's insane. I'm going to read this little excerpt from the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, and then boom, we're going to go to Berg, and we're going to talk about it. So consciousness. Perhaps no aspect of mind is more familiar or more puzzling than consciousness in our conscious experience of self and the world. The problem of consciousness is arguably the central issue in current theorizing about the mind. Despite the lack of any agreed upon theory of consciousness, there is a widespread, if less than universal, consensus that an adequate account of mind requires a clear understanding of it and its place in nature. We need to understand both what consciousness is and how it relates to other non-conscious aspects of reality. It's a big problem. We want to figure it out. We've been trying to figure it out for hundreds of years. Where are we? Let's find out with Alex Berg as we talk about consciousness. I'm here with Alex Berg, and we're going to talk about consciousness. Yay! Woo. Can I can I give a disclaimer before before we really get into it? Yeah, I'm not an expert. <laughs> uh, uh, I I have an undergrad degree in psychology, and I read a lot. Cool, cool. But like, I don't I don't want to be painting myself as the dude who <laughs> speaks for the scientific establishment on consciousness, and I'm not even certain that my own views on it are internally consistent. So uh, like I might not be, Yeah, but I, I, I have a lot of thoughts on it. I feel exactly the same way. Like I have an idea of like what all these theories are yeah. and everything, but I, we could be extremely yeah, wrong. And, and I think it's comforting that traditionally consciousness has been like the trickiest of topics yeah. for, for psychology and cognitive science. And so I, I'm a little bit comforted that if my views are inconsistent, they're at least consistent with everybody else kind of going like, I don't know. You, yeah. You know. At the end of the day, everyone has no idea what consciousness is. Yeah. Which yeah. is, yeah. Which is wild. Yeah. 
Um, Except for me, I have the only right. Theory <laughs> yeah, on yeah. For, he says he's an amateur expert, but he's really uh, the most. Expert yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm the one everybody calls up when yeah. they have questions. Yeah, um, I got my undergraduate in philosophy, mm-hmm. and I was really into like Nietzsche and like all that stuff. But they were like, no, 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 the money's not there. You need to get into the philosophy of the mind mm-hmm. because that's where that's like the only scientific question that people are turning to philosophers and being like. Do you have any ideas? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because we can't figure it out. Yeah. I also love that somebody was like, no, 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 there is money in philosophy. <laughs> Trust me. It's just over here. <laughs> well, I was watching um, one of the TED Talks with Daniel Dennett. And yeah. halfway in his talk, he literally says, I'm looking for backers to make my <laughs> documentary. Yeah. Like, there is And no he's money. like and a he, very well-respected. Yeah. yeah him yeah. and Chalmers are like the... Like when I was in school, they were the kings and they still are the kings. So it's yeah. like five years. Um, and uh, for what it's worth, they were the kings when I was in school and it's been, <laughs> you know, 13 or 14, yeah. whatever it is. So. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing, too, about setting like the timeline of consciousness is, you know, it goes all the way back to like Descartes mm-hmm. in like 1640, starting to think about it. And like, there's all these thinkers and then between like the 1900s to 1980s, like no one thought about consciousness. Really? Yeah. It wasn't until the eighties until they picked it back up and now it's like, Oh, that's so weird. I wonder why that is. Yeah. Cause I always, so when I was studying it in, in college, I was, uh, I was doing a lot of cognitive science classes, which is like, basically, you know, you read a chapter from a psychology textbook, then you read a chapter from a philosophy textbook and you just kind of go back and forth. But so my, um, my sort of avenue to study and it always kind of paralleled the rise of, um, computers and computing. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think I have a very, like what's called a computationalist mindset that consciousness is, um, a certain kind of information processing. Yeah. Um, but so, you know, it's interesting that like to hear that it wasn't really nobody was doing much with it, uh, in that, in that span of time, because that's the span of time that I always go like, Oh, that's when we were like sort of building (laughs) up these little weird machines, you know? Yeah. Maybe we were just more focused on computers and psychology. Yeah. Um, Yeah. 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 But yeah, I thought that was very interesting. Um, so should we just, I I don't know, how should we jump in? (laughs) Um, I'll, I'll, I'll say something controversial that I I sincerely believe. Um, Mm -hmm. and then I'll, I'll walk it back immediately. Um, I, I think that consciousness is an illusion. Mm -hmm. I, I don't trust my subjective experience (laughs) enough to like fully agree with the sort of Descartes. Mm -hmm. Like I think therefore I am. Um, however, I also think that the term consciousness is a very useful label to apply to a, a to a certain kind of subjective phenomena of a you know of a what it feels like to be a a thing that processes this much information. And so even though I, I do kind of like keep coming back to the more stuff I read, I keep coming back to this idea that it's not really there's not really any there there with consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, I do also keep using the label because it's so entrenched in the language that it's just, it's, it's kind of a nice shorthand. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I feel like a lot of this is, uh, semantics. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and Um, I think that's, that's part of what's tricky about it too, is it's, it's the most subjective of phenomena. Yeah. And 
it's so squishy and so the the boundaries of consciousness are so porous that you know it's almost like the more you try to pin it down the more it kind of like scoots away from yeah, you and goes yeah. like what about this thing yeah, you know which yeah. which i also think is very interesting and very fun about mm-hmm, it mm-hmm. yeah uh yeah i i agree um uh, you said something that um what was i gonna say Oh, well, just like the term consciousness, like breaks down into like six different terms. Yeah. It refers to a lot of different phenomena. Yeah. Yeah. And then even before the, I think the eighties, they had like different, even spellings of consciousness that meant different things. And then I think it was like too confusing. They used to spell it with a K to try to seem badass. (laughs) Those are like the punk kids. Yeah. It was like a Mortal Kombat tie-in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, I... So, so, you know, so as I said, like a lot of my, um, I I can boil down a lot of my thoughts on consciousness to a couple of like books that very heavily influenced me when I was studying it in college. Mm -hmm. Uh, the first of which is a book called wet mind, um, by, uh, Coslin and Koenig. I think it's Oliver Koenig. I can't remember their first names, but, um, and what wet mind does is it does a very good and thorough job of, walking through the ways in which information is, is processed in the brain Mm -hmm. for specific things, like in your visual cortex or your, your auditory cortex. Um, and it, the, the book is shockingly readable for a, for a neurosci textbook, but (laughs) yeah, it's, and it's like, like leisurely almost, (laughs) but so what they do is they build it up and they go through like, okay, well in your visual cortex, this Mm -hmm. is how you process this kind of information. And then they back that up by saying, we, we think that this is the case and that this area processes information in this way, um, by using a host of, um, brain injury cases. And they'll say like, okay, so people with agraphias who can't recognize text tend to have lesions right here. And we think that interrupts the flow of this information from this sub area to this sub area. And they do a really good job at the end of each chapter by kind of summarizing what they've been saying with these flow charts. Mm -hmm. And then those flow charts stack together so that by the time you get to the end of the book, there's this like one master flow chart of just like information comes in through the senses. It leaves this way. It circles around internally in all these different (laughs) ways, you know? Yeah. Uh, so like that, that book was very influential on me. Yeah. Um, there's another book that was very influential on me, um, called, uh, the illusion of conscious will by, I think Daniel Wegener, mm-hmm. um, or Wagner maybe. Um, and that book does a very good job of making the case that your consciousness is a thing that's tacked on for you after, after your brain has already done all the processing. So like yeah. here, like put your hand on the table. Okay. Okay. And tap your index finger. Uh, my index finger, this one. There you go. Okay, great, great. So (laughs) we can do brain studies showing when you, uh, made the choice to tap your, your index brain studies. We we could, we can probe, you know, like, but, uh, we can, we can probe and get a sense of the neural activity that's going on, um, and find spikes from when you made the conscious decision to tap your index finger Mm -hmm. and when your brain sent the motor command to tap your index finger. And for you to have consciously willed that, Uh you need to have made the choice to do it before your, your brain sent the command to do it, right? Like otherwise that you, you didn't do it. Right. And what we find is that your brain sends the command to Mm -hmm. execute a motor action 300 milliseconds before you're aware of making the choice to do so. Yes. Yeah. Um, 
And we don't think it's, you know, it's all controversial, but like, we don't think that that's unique to finger tapping. We think that's the case with any kind of output Mm -hmm. speech, you know, blinking at any of this sort of stuff. Um, and the like stomach churning, you know, conclusion that has to be drawn from (laughs) that is that we're not really making any decisions. Those decisions are kind of a thing that the brain had to put in afterwards to convince all of these little subsystems and subroutines to play nicely together, yeah. which, which I think is fascinating. Um, and then beyond those two, those two specific books, I think just in general, Patricia Churchland, who's a, I, I kind of credit her with modern, uh, cognitive neuroscience. Like I think she's sort of the, the person who tied it mm-hmm. all together, but she's, um, She's a she's a philosopher and a cognitive scientist. Uh, a, a book of hers that's exceedingly dense, but very <laughs> very like rewarding. Yeah. Um, called Neurophilosophy, mm-hmm. I think does a really good job of breaking down this kind of argument a lot of people have, where they'll go like, "Well, you know, you could never know what it is to see red, right? Like, it's not the same right. as saying I saw light with a wavelength of four hundred nanometers." And she goes. It doesn't matter. Your label, your the fact that you label it red and that you attach yeah. this emotion to it doesn't change the fact that it's these neurons reacting in this way to this specific stimulus. Like yeah. we can reduce this to neural and chemical activity in the brain and right. we can reconstruct that activity in a computer if we if we had a good enough one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and she makes a very powerful argument for it, you know, yeah. and it's uh and so I think those, that that's kind of like my, my background is those like three. those. Yeah. 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 And it definitely made me think like, uh, like going back to, to school, like one of the first problems, like why f- philosophy is asking it is like, there's not one part that you could be like here, this is where consciousness exists. Yeah. Um, especially cause you're talking about the brain lighting up in different, uh, like parts of the brain when you ask like tap the index finger mm-hmm. or how do you feel about this is, uh, when they study the brain, they see the brain lining up in different ways. It's not like there's one central part yeah. that's like, okay, this is consciousness now communicating to, um, yeah, like we can do very detailed maps of sh- yeah. showing like, okay, this part of your brain controls your hand and this part of that part controls yeah. your thumb, you right. know, and, yeah. and all this sort of stuff. And the closest neural analog. So the closest, the closest thing happening in the brain that's lines up with, with what we think is conscious experience Mm -hmm. is, uh, something called the default mode network. Mm -hmm. And the default mode network is not localized in any one part of the brain. It's distributed across the whole of the brain. Um, but we think that this is, uh, the closest thing the brain has to consciousness because we can do studies where we reduce activity in the default mode network, either by administering in some cases, hallucinogenic drugs like LSD (laughs) or psilocybin or something. Uh Um, also, uh, people in, um, a state of consciousness called flow tend to have reduced activity in a default mode network. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And so that's, so flow is when you're so engaged in activity, like, and we've, we've all experienced this where you get, you get so caught up in something that like, you're kind of not there anymore, you know? Um, and the, when you go away, what also goes away is the activity in the default mode network. Interesting. Um, but it's kind of fuzzy again because yeah. it's not It's not like, oh, it's this cluster of neurons over yeah. here. It's a much more sort of broadly distributed um, pattern of activity in the brain. Right. And, and that kind of makes me think about how you were talking about... Uh, 
your brain telling your consciousness that you made the choice when yeah. you it sounds like maybe whatever like anxiety or whatever you have in your brain that like second guesses things if you get rid of that when you're in flow consciousness like maybe that's what people think is their consciousness but it isn't does it make sense yeah so like it's like there's what your brain is doing and then this layer of conscious you know consciousness mm-hmm. i did air quotes no one can see yeah, that, yeah. But like, <laughs> you know this layer of of consciousness on top of it um and like you're saying like the anxiety is that like upper layer or like what people maybe attribute to like the eye like yeah being like that's me that's like because that's another thing is like nobody knows where this I concept is and why do we need it? Yeah. Why can't we just be computers like moving about in the world? Well, and what's interesting is there's a, um, Oh God, I'm going to fuck up the name of this. (laughs) Uh, there's a sub discipline, uh, called cognitive ethology. Uh, that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. And the, uh, my eyes are closed because I'm trying to see the titles of the books. Um, but the, the argument um, for cognitive ethology tends to be, well, in the same way that we can look to evolution mm-hmm. to study and better understand the development and the, the uses and the reasons for limbs and livers and, you know, and all this sort of stuff, like we should also be looking uh, to evolution to try to explore the development of mind. Right. Um, you know, and uh, when you look at uh, and when you look at stuff from that perspective, you can kind of see like there's a couple of type examples in in cognitive ethology of animals exhibiting highly stereotyped behavior, like behavior that's just they're programmed like robots. Yeah. yeah. Um, and what what cognitive ethologists think um, and what I what has the ring of truth to me, although again, I can't pretend to know enough to say, um, is that really what human consciousness is, is we're just a very complex machine with a bunch of these tiny subroutines. You have a subroutine that Mm -hmm. takes care of pumping blood through your body. You have a subroutine that takes care of like, you know, reacting to people's faces you recognize. And all of these subroutines are sharing information with one another, you know, and they're overlapping in certain key areas. And we think that consciousness is kind of the net result of all of this information sharing between these tiny Mm -hmm. little, these tiny little robots that we can see in the evolutionary record. You know, we can look at toads and we can break the hunting behavior of a toad (laughs) down to like a four stage, like highly robotic thing. Um, that's uh, interesting. Cause then it, it also, it makes me think that like consciousness is like just there to like protect and manage like everything. Yeah. I I think it is to be like, Oh, there's a problem. I should go get this fixed. And then when there's no problem, that's what causes us to be like, well, I guess I'll just really get into comic books or pop culture and bullshit, you (laughs) know? I read, I wish I could remember the, the name of the, uh, author who wrote this article, but I read an article in the past like year, 18 months, something Mm -hmm. like that. And, uh, you mentioned David Chalmers earlier, who's famous for coining the hard problem, you know, like Mm -hmm. that phrase of like, you know, the hard problem of consciousness is that we can't ever objectively break down what it is to feel something subjectively. Right. Right. And this, uh, this guy, whose article I was reading, um, God, I wish I could, I wish I could remember, <laughs> but, uh, I was doing a really like convincing article not that long ago that was going like, 
maybe there isn't a hard problem. Like Mm -hmm. maybe, you know, this notion that it's impossible to break down what human consciousness is, is a leftover bit of human exceptionalism, you know, from this, you know, previous era of science where we were like, we're not animals, you know, like we can use tools and then something would use a tool and we'd go like, that's, it's not the same, you know? No. Yeah. Yeah. Or we'd have like these mirror tests and go like, we can recognize ourselves in a mirror. Ergo, we have some higher functioning and then baboons would do it. We'd go like, they're not, it's not, it's (laughs) different, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Reading about consciousness and like reading, like we were talking earlier about how there's so many different theories it's just like, I feel like there's a lot of denialism happening in a lot of them Yeah, where there, I think there's a lot of people that, that want to argue that we're like consciousness is this like big universal, like amazing thing. And like really just grounds us to like everything. And, and it's like, no, we're like, people suck. Yeah. <laughs> like we're not amazing. And like, we're just little meat sacks that yeah. happen to be aware that they're meat sacks. Yeah. You yeah. Know? Yeah. I am um, d- d- going back to Chalmers again. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you got a chance to watch that lecture. I sent you the link yeah, to, yeah. but yeah, his whole thing. So he has this lecture called the mind bleeds into the world, mm-hmm. which I think is really fascinating. And, you know, he makes the case that, um, our relationships with our phones and with computers are making it so that we're kind of offloading our consciousness from, you know, just our minds like into our phone, like, you know, so you and your phone taken together are a conscious system. Your phone's not conscious. Um, but your phone knows a lot of things that you don't know anymore. You know, Mm -hmm. like when I, when I first got a cell phone in 2001, you know, (laughs) like you couldn't store a number on it, you know, you had to, you had to know it, you know, and now I don't know anybody's fucking number or email, you know, or or anything. I know my grandparents' numbers because I had to know it when I was five. Yeah. 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 I can still remember all my friends' phone numbers from middle school <laughs> yeah, because yeah. I remember the shapes they made when I would punch them in on the, uh, I love that. That's awesome. On the phone. <laughs> um, and that, and, and Chalmers thing about like, you know, consciousness bleeding out into the world is backed up by certain, um, animal studies. Uh, it's like, I was just reading a book about spiders. Um, and one of the interesting things with the, um, uh, orb weaver spiders. So, you know, and an orb web is basically the traditional spider web. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I've learned, there's a million different kinds, which is very cool. But, uh, <laughs> spiders are cool. Yeah, spiders, <laughs> spiders are super cool. Uh, but so one of the things they say about an orb web is it effectively, um, expands the spider's, uh, sensorium, like the kind of the sphere of its awareness of its yeah. surroundings. Um, you know, and you can take the web and the spider together as one as one system in that way. Right. Yeah, like, okay. um, where the web doesn't have any awareness on its own and the mm-hmm. spider has awareness on its own, but not as much as it does when it's paired with the web. Right. Um, and so I think that also kind of goes back to this idea that this, this thing we call consciousness that we tend to kind of, you know, treat as if like the boundary of it is just our skulls, I think yeah. is actually a lot more porous than that. And I think there's the more information you're taking in, the more it it kind of expands a little bit. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This and, uh, what you're talking about animals versus humans, like consciousness, if you will, I guess, um, is there's again, I don't know. I'd have to look up who the scientist is, but she did studies on how like cooking has changed, uh, like our evolution Mm -hmm. and basically the fact that we're not scavenging and eating raw food, like so many animals and, when you eat raw, you get hungry again. So it's Mm -hmm. just, that's kind of like your, 
your moment to moment, like so much time is just spent on cooking. It is crazy when you look at, there, there's a really great documentary the BBC did called Human Planet. Mm-hmm. Um, that's basically just planet Earth, but for people, yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, and it's like, oh yeah, if you're not if you're not worrying about like, oh fuck, I got to get tickets to Blade Runner, but like <laughs> parking's going to be a nightmare, yeah, you know, yeah. like if you're not worrying about that stuff, like really all you need to do is like concentrate on like food, shelter, not getting killed. And then like yeah. once at one point in your life, yeah. you need to make a baby, <laughs> you yeah. know, like, and then you're good. Yeah, then that part turns on or whatever yeah, yeah. and then turns off. But then again, there are animals like octopuses where as soon oh, as they procreate, they die. I love octopuses. I love octopuses. I can't believe their lifespan is only one to two years. It's it's very short. Have you read, um, uh, there's a philosopher uh, named Peter Godfrey Smith, Mm -hmm. um, who put out a book last year, um, called, oh, fuck me. Why can't I remember (laughs) it? It's so good. It's so good. And he's one of my favorite authors. He's a really, he's a, um, he's a philosopher who a couple years ago just got obsessed with diving in octopuses because he has a friend in Australia. What a life. (laughs) Um, And his friend showed him a dive site called Octopolis. Okay. And Octopolis is an area where there's um, these octopuses called gloomy octopuses, which is very funny. (laughs) I think it's octopus tetricus. But, uh, and um, there was like a crate or something, some like bit of man-made like flotsam or jetsam that sank in the middle of this otherwise like pretty barren, like all the sea around there is like pretty sandy. There's like not much that lives there. Um, but octopuses started colonizing the area around here. And whenever, when an octopus eats the the term octopus's garden is like all the shells from the mollusks they eat that they toss aside. Those shells then made that area more habitable for more octopuses um, and also more habitable for the prey that they prey upon. Yeah. And it's this, this sort of thing, you know, going back to like the human exceptionalism, like if we saw a group of people doing that same thing, we'd go like, oh, well that's agriculture and that's a village, you know, like, and it's a lot harder for people to recognize that same sort of thing in, um, I mean, in any animal, but certainly an invertebrate, you know, yeah, like it doesn't yeah. even have a fucking back, but it doesn't even have a centralized nervous system, yeah. you know, it can like squish itself through things. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're, they're so fascinating, yeah. but you know, so I think a lot of this, um, I think a lot of my personal issues with, with theories of consciousness goes back to this kind of like Descartes notion of, I think therefore I am. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't know if thinking makes you so, right. uh, but also it, you know, he was a, he was a dualist and he was also part of, as was everyone else who was alive in the 17th century. Yeah. You know, and like, I'll just say for listeners that dualism is oh, like, yes, yes, is yes, like yes. mind and body with the soul. Yeah. So yeah. Like there was a big, like consciousness is your soul that when you die, your soul yeah, yeah. the body. Yeah. Like, dualism yeah. is <laughs> the opposite. Uh, so materialism says like consciousness is a direct product of what's going on mm-hmm. in the physical brain. Yes. Yeah, and dualism is like, no, it's this other kind of yeah. like thing that kind of like, yeah. com- you know, you can't um, point to it because it comes from outside of you and inhabits you. And, yeah. And I, and then it goes to heaven. Yeah. I, yeah. I always have such, I have such an issue with it. Um, yeah. But you know, it's like, I think a lot of this, this issue with consciousness just comes from humanities and researchers like unwillingness to admit that a it's 
whatever this subjective experience is, yeah. it's probably not unique to humans. It's, I'm it's yeah. sure it's different to be a bat, you know, or something yeah, like yeah. that. But um, there's a great philosophical article called what's it like to be a bat? Yeah. Yeah. Which, which I also <laughs> which think is I, pretty accessible. Yeah, and readable. It is very accessible. And one I of these, one of these cognitive uh, ethology books I read starts out by going like, you know, the question isn't, what is it like to be a bat? Like mm-hmm. the question is, so there is something that it's like to be a bat. Yeah. So let's see how that feeling of what it is like to be something has, yeah. has evolved. But yeah, I think, I think this like whole, you know, the, the history of science is basically watching humans knock themselves off a perch. You know, yeah, it's like, yeah, totally. <laughs> we used to be, you know, it used to be that, you know, all the maps of the world were centered on Greece. And then it's like, okay, well, Greece isn't the center of everything. And then it's like, well, and the sun doesn't revolve around the earth. The earth revolves around the sun, you know, Mm -hmm. and now it's not just, you know, one planet, there's all these other ones and it's not our solar system. There's millions of them, you know, and I I think consciousness, oh, and now it's not even like we have this one universe. We think there's like multiverses, you know? So (laughs) I think consciousness is kind of headed in the same direction where, I think in order to really understand what it is, we're going to have to admit that the human version of it is just one version of it. And what we should be looking for are common features of, of ways that subjectivity evolves in any kind of system that processes information, not just biological, but also mechanical, you know, like Mm -hmm. what, what is going on in a neural network or something like that, you know, or one of these deep learning, um, AIs and, is it really any different than what we're doing? And I, I don't, I don't think, I think it's different in kind. I think yeah. there's a difference between chips and, and neurons, but yeah. I think I that's a pretty superficial difference at the end of the day. Totally. Yeah. And I, but I don't know, but I don't know. That's I, the, yeah. I don't know either, but I have a suspicion that like a lot of, you know, computers and machines that we're making is mimicking ourselves, maybe without us even realizing it. Like, yeah. Um, because yeah, it's like, then when we do study the brain and trying to lock lockdown consciousness or whatever. It's like you see the brain light up and you can say, oh, this part of the brain affects, you know, your right leg and this and this. And it's like, it's this complicated machine that we just haven't completely cracked yet. So what was your, so when you were in school and you were studying conscious, I mean, Mm -hmm. it seems like you and I are largely on the same page, but like, I'm curious what sort of your takeaway was coming at it from a more I don't think you can come at consciousness without having at least a little bit of philosophy, but I'm curious what your takeaway was coming at it from a more philosophical angle than I did. Um, I think what I liked the most about it was these like thought experiments to reveal how, what, like, I'm just going to say you, uh, what you think your consciousness is incorrect. Mm -hmm. And there were like different thought experiments that we would do to like basically uncover our own subjective thinking and be like, Oh, this thing I thought was true was not true. Do you remember any of them? Yeah, I remember one that like blew my little brain. Oh yeah, yeah, let's do um, it. Um, so at the time, um, or okay, so like the the statement I had was, um, like I'm a vegetarian or whatever. Like I don't I don't eat meat. And it's like okay, well why don't you eat meat? It's like oh well because I care about animals and I don't want them like I don't want them to suffer for. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and then it's like, okay, so you're a vegetarian. It's like, yeah. Oh, but I eat fish. And it's like, oh, wait, 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 you eat fish mm-hmm. is an efficient animal. Don't you care about the animal? And it's like, oh, well, I really like fish. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's like, okay, so why am I, why am I morally okay with eating fish? But like mm-hmm. a cow or a pig I have, uh, problems with. And then I was able to uncover that 
the intelligence of the animal is how I determine what I eat. Mm -hmm. Um, and that in my head, like, was like, oh, this like belief I had that I carried with me was completely incorrect of like what my true system was. Um, which I'm sure like, even if I thought more about it, it would even crumble more. Yeah. I mean, Um, it's, uh, I, uh, I almost went to China for a summer when I was in college, mm-hmm. uh, and then SARS happened. And so I wound up living in Ohio for a couple weeks instead. <laughs> um, but part of the, um, uh, when we were going there, part of the thing was like, you know, you might be exposed to some experiences that are a little bit, you know, mm-hmm. uneasy for you. Would you eat dog if you were served it? Oh, And it was like, and, and <laughs> I ultimately came down on the side of like, yeah, I mean, I guess I wouldn't go out of my way to eat dog, yeah, yeah. but like, you know, it's not really any different than eating a pig. And like, and here's the crazy thing since like I, I went on a, like an octopus binge a few years ago and yeah. got really into octopuses and like they're, they're fascinating creatures. They're brilliant. Like yeah. octopuses, all the cephalopods like are all brilliant. Um, it makes me want to eat them more. I have like a, Interesting. St- I have like a stupid, like, you yeah. know, that movie ravenous. Uh, no, I haven't seen it. Well, okay. So ravenous. <laughs> Very fun movie. Uh, but the plot of Ravenous is basically like, if you eat a man's flesh, you gain the strength of that man. Oh. And like, I have this like stupid thing that I'm like, maybe if I eat the octopus, I'll like have. It gets smarter. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> well, Which I, mean, I but, know is not how it works, but you know. Right. But I mean, there is links to like eating meat did help our evolution. Though. Yeah. 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 And yeah. cooking and all that stuff. Um, but that's very interesting because... Uh, while I was, I recently worked on a project about teaching octopuses to kids basically and like cool facts about them. And, uh, one of the people I was working with was like, man, I feel bad eating octopuses cause they're so smart. Maybe I should stop. And then we uncovered, they only lived for like one to two years. Yeah. And she's like, well, now I don't feel that guilty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like they're, they, I like, I mean, that's something too. I think if they evolved to live past two years. They could, if humans wipe out, I think they'll take over. I, 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 <laughs> I, I sincerely believe, but cannot prove, um, that there is, I was reading a book about sperm whales and they went mm. into detail at one point about how many, uh, giant squid beaks are found in the average sperm whales gut when it beaches or dies. Um, and it's, some insane, I can't remember off the top of my head, but then, then they then basically go through the math and go like, so this is how many giant squid there must be like in the Southern ocean around Antarctica for sperm whales to be able to eat this much Mm -hmm. and for the population to still sustain. And basically the conclusion is like the bottom of the sea is crawling with these fucking things, you know? Um, and so I, I think there's a lot of I think there's a lot of surprises in the deep sea from the cephalopods that will, uh, (laughs) that will challenge a lot of what we think makes us human. Yeah. And like, you know, going back to that Chalmersy thing about the mind bleeds into the world. Mm -hmm. One of the ways that happens for humans and has been happening for uh, millennia at this point is with, um, written language. Yeah. Um, and the, the ability of humans to offload a bit of knowledge into a book, you know, or now into a you know, uh, uh, a think piece, uh, you know, (laughs) (laughs) um, makes that knowledge more accessible for future humans. We're able to bootstrap, bootstrap up all of this stuff. And that's, that's something that we thought for a very long time was a uniquely human feature. Um, and while we haven't found written language, uh, in, in any other species, we have found pretty compelling evidence of culture in, um, in sperm whales, Mm -hmm. uh, sperm whales have, uh, global societies, 
that are huge um, and that are signaled by um, certain patterns of clicking they do uh, with a with an organ that they use for echolocation. Cool. And what what researchers have discovered is that um, certain sperm whale societies. Uh, pass on certain information about feeding grounds. And we think that one of the reason a lot of sperm whales are, uh, sperm whales are so skittish uh, is because a lot of them have passed on the cultural memory of fear of boats. Cause there's sperm whales that oh. are still alive now that were alive during the Yankee whaling boom. And oh. during the sixties when industrialized whaling really took yeah. off. Um, and, but because they can't write it down, the evidence of that's a lot trickier to parse apart. Right. You know? Yeah. And I think that, with, um, you know, the more that we, the more that we study, um, animals. And I think also I, d- I am not making the argument that there's consciousness in plants, but, um, <laughs> but some philosophers and scientists, some, would. some would. Yeah. <laughs> and I do think that there is, I think that there's merit to trying to study how is information shared in a situation where there aren't neurons. Right. Um, and you know, like in slime mold, like you see, like you, I feel like every three weeks there's a new article about like slime molds done it again, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. like a slime mold <laughs> ran a maze, you know, and, but I, I think that there's a lot of, a lot of merit to studying how information is processed, um, outside of a neural, out, outside of a neuronal substrate. Um, because the last kind of bastion of human exceptionalism is our brains. And octopuses are really fascinating because they have these incredible um, problem-solving abilities. They don't have a central nervous system. They have like a little ring of neurons around their throats, and then most of the processing happens out in their limbs. Um, And that's fucking wild, you know? And and (laughs) even in, um, you know, there's also a lot of studies being done on the intelligence of... Intelligence is another term that I think is very poorly defined. Sure, sure, it's yeah. frequently interchanged <laughs> with consciousness, but I think they're different things. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the intelligence of crows and ravens and that sort oh, of stuff, yeah. and they also have a very different. Their, their brains are organized very differently. They have, um, oh fuck, it's the the acronym is NCL. It's like neuro caught it. I can't remember what it is, but basically they have like little clusters of neurons that are different than like the kinds of wrinkles and folds we see in mammalian brains, Oh wow. but they're still able to do these like really like high level problem solving right. things, you know? And so I, I, you know, again, I think like this notion that like, we're so special, we're so yeah. conscious is, is really going to be knocked yeah. down pretty hard. The more we look into everything yeah. else. That makes me think of a study, um, of like trees and, um, the scientist who I don't remember, uh, Basically, she was studying yeah, the subtitle trees. for this episode. She'd be like, I don't know, man, go look it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I'll try to like be like, and here's your homework. And I'll, I'll never. Like yeah, yeah. Of reading. I'll never remember. <laughs> um, but uh, she was studying trees and noticed like anytime there were like in this forest, if there was a part like part of the forest was like, like with fire or like wasn't doing mm-hmm. well, trees from like a miles away would send nutrients to the oh really yeah yeah and they realized they were like they don't know how they're communicating but they're somehow able to realize that like we need to like put all our like through the ground and everything like send everything that way to fix Mm -hmm. it so like all the roots and everything would start to go that way and like oh weird yeah so it's like even the trees communicate with each other and like this probably different type of consciousness there's a a grove of trees in 
I think it's like Utah <laughs> again. Like, I don't know. Um, Somewhere. <laughs> I think it's, I think they're quaking Aspens or something like that, but basically scientists thought that this was a forest and then found out that based on our definitions of what an organism is, it's actually just one huge organism. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that in a lot of forests, most of the trees in the same way humans can't survive on their own. We need this like huge network of bacteria and that sort of stuff to help us digest our food and fight off disease. Like trees can't survive on their own. They need fungus to capture nitrate for them. And I think that the, you know, another thing with consciousness is like, it's very tempting to try to study it in isolation, but I think you can't really isolate it from anything. I think the whole you know, I think people think that like, if you got deep enough into your skull, there's like this little hard marble of consciousness and you can look for it and go right. like, there, that's the one. That's you it. Know? Yeah. But I think it's a much more, um, I think it's much, much broader than that. And I think mm-hmm. it's much more, I, I think the reality of what a conscious system is, is much more malleable. You know, like yeah. I, I always go back to like phantom limb studies. I, there's there's oh, yeah. it, like phantom limb studies, I think are really fascinating because basically there are these situations in which, um, you know, somebody will become an amputee. Normally, suddenly, that's not something that like just kind of like happens over yeah. time. You go like, oh, any day now. Um, <laughs> but uh, people become amputees and their brains maps of their bodies will not line up with the new yeah. reality of their bodies. And mm-hmm. they'll still have the sensation of being able to move their limbs or have pain in their limbs sometimes. Um, and I I always contrast that with these other studies that show that when you use a tool for long enough, like a hammer or something, your brains, um, uh, it's called a, um, fuck, is it somatic map? Uh, but your brain's map of basically the limits of your body extends to include the tool that you're using. Well, like that makes sense with phantom phone syndrome. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like it's a tool that. And like, you know, for me, like nobody can see it, uh, but I'm, <laughs> I'm holding right now a, a canteen that is very beat up. And like <laughs> I have OCD and like this canteen's one of the things that like if I don't have it on me, I snap like, <laughs> like to the point where I'll be drinking out of it. And I won't feel the weight of it in my back pocket and I'll panic because I don't know where it is Yeah, and I'll be holding it, you know, like, yeah. and so I think what's happened is my brain has extended to include this as part of my body. And in the same way that like, you know, you hear stories of people leaving the house without their phones and they're like, oh, like, yeah, you know, what? You know, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they freak out. And I think something that's, that's really interesting is, okay, well, we know it to be true that the brain extends its map of yourself yeah. um, to include tools that you use. Does that include a computer, you know, like does that. And when you're using the internet, which is this distributed global thing, like Mm -hmm. is, is it, is it the case that our consciousness now is fundamentally different from the consciousness of somebody in a pre electronic era, you know, like where I'm, it used to be the case that if something happened in China, nobody knew, right? nobody knew, you know, like there's a, there was a big, um, there's a very famous uh, volcanic explosion in Krakatoa in 1883. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons it was so famous is because it happened right after they had laid uh, transatlantic uh, telegraph cables to Indonesia because it was oh. a Dutch colony. And so people were able to find out about it. And it was like yeah. one of these first kind of like media things where everyone's like, oh my God, you know. Yeah. Um, but that's comparatively modern, you know. Yeah. yeah. And certainly evolution works at a slow enough speed that mm-hmm. we really haven't had time to adapt to that in any yeah. meaningful way. 
Uh, and it, yeah, it makes me very curious in the same way that I think we need to be comparing our consciousness to animal consciousnesses. I don't know how to do it, but I also think there's great value in comparing our consciousness to the subjective experience of someone who lived in like ancient Greece, you know, where it was just like, interesting. yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Well, that was something I was reading about too, was, um, why they like tribute like Descartes and like Hamlet, uh, to being like, this is when humans first started thinking about us being conscious Mm -hmm. and like this notion of I, because before that, all like literature and everything that we've found in artwork just seemed to have like collective consciousness, not thinking about the individual. Really? Mm-hmm. Like just like a lot of like we speak and that yeah, sort of thing? Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. Especially because probably there was such a huge dependence on surviving being in groups. Yeah. So it was just like collective consciousness and it wasn't till like, like, yeah, Hamlet. Right. Like, we, ha- we hadn't yet like divvied it up into like, this is my bit of awareness and that's your bit of awareness. Yeah. 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 That's interesting. Especially if you think of like us being animals, like, you know, yeah. and just migrating and hunting and looking for food and procreating and dying. And that's about it. There's like, a, um, I think that uh, I, I love sci-fi and <laughs> sci-fi I think that cool. consciousness is one area where sci-fi has been particularly useful in helping to illuminate some of the like weirder areas of it. Yeah. Um, you know, we'll, I'll get into Blade Runner in a moment because <laughs> I'm very excited for the movie. But, um, but uh, the the two examples that I think of immediately are there's a short story um, by a guy named Peter Watts mm-hmm. um, called Colony Creature. Uh, it's like a five minute read, but it's uh, it's about a guy who got his consciousness uh, put into an octopus oh. and talking about what that's like yeah. and how octopuses have hundreds of suckers on their arms. And yeah. like he, he calls the, the flood of information obscene and talks about yeah. like not having control over it. And it's oh, like, that's amazing. it's re, it's really kind of an interesting way to, to approach the problem of what is it like to be an octopus? Yeah. And then there's a book called, um, a fire upon the deep by, uh, Werner Vinge, mm-hmm. uh, who, in a different realm of consciousness coined the term singularity to refer to like the AI explosion. Right. Um, and in a fire upon the deep, there's a race of dogs, uh, like these dog aliens. I think they're called tines. Uh, (laughs) but each of them, uh, has their consciousness shared, uh, among their litter. So if it's like a litter of four dogs, like Mm -hmm. they walk around collectively, they have like one, one consciousness and they refer to themselves that way. Yeah. And then somehow somebody comes to the planet and introduces radios to them. Okay. And one of these like little groups of dogs starts like having one of the dogs wear this radio vest and like go like way far afield. And they just sort of stud like that's not the point of the book. The book's great, but that's not the point of the book. But like they, they have a lot of like how that changes the dog's consciousness and that sort of thing, which is very interesting. Yeah. And, uh, the, the novella that Blade Runner is based on, um, do androids dream of electric sheep, I think does a really great job of showing what a spectrum of consciousness there is. And, you know, uh, in, I, I assume you've seen the original. I haven't. Oh, really? I'll <laughs> but I, I'm sure I will. Soon. I'll say this. It's good and it's worth yeah. watching. It's not 
people put it on a very high pedestal. Yeah, I'd say it's like something where probably most people would be like, I can't believe you haven't seen it. Yeah, and it's like, I can believe that you haven't seen it. Like, <laughs> I, you'd probably enjoy it. But I think the the book, one of the things people really geek out on on the movie is like, mm-hmm. is the main character actually a, a replicant? Is he actually a, like a robot and doesn't know it? Oh, okay. Um, and in the, uh, in the book, uh, they do a really good job of the, the background of the book. That's like not really touched on in the movie is that there's been some like radioactive fallout. Most of humanity has gone to Mars and a lot of the people who've been left behind have been, um, severely cognitively hampered by the effects of this fallout. Okay. Um, and so there's, you know, like normies and then like whatever the (laughs) term is they use for those people, the simpletons. And then among the, um, the normal people, uh, the main character and his wife use something called a mood organ where they can literally just dial in what emotion they want. Um, and then on top of that, there's these, these robots that are so in the book, they call them Andes. Uh, but these Mm. robots that are so human-like that, um, that you can't tell them apart. And then within those robots, there's ones who know their robots and ones who don't. Interesting. Um, and the book does a really good job of, kind of showing that there is this like spectrum, you know, and it's very difficult to say like, well, is that robot who behaves in all the same ways you behave less conscious than, you know, your wife who's dialing in like how she wants to feel on a machine or than this guy who lives downstairs and makes toys, you know, like, um, that's interesting. It's, it's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It does kind of muddy that what we were talking earlier about intelligence, like, cause I think in a lot of debates on consciousness, there is like this like superior type of consciousness, which I think people attribute to like intelligence and being able to have like a richer experience than say mm-hmm. a plant. Um, and then, and then I don't know, like just thinking about humans, like there are geniuses and then there are people that like, mm-hmm. you know, not, yeah, not like, so much. <laughs> I picked a big ball, lint out my belly button. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, are we sharing the same type of consciousness? Yeah, that, yeah. You know? Um, yeah. And then also like what you were talking about, the octopus. Uh, I mean, I, I think like something we talked about when we were studying it in my class was like, even just us swapping our consciousness, would we be completely blown away? Oh man. Like so- there's no proof to say like what my color of red is the same as your color mm-hmm. of red. And have you read, there's a, I, there's a great, um, Daniel Dennett short story actually, <laughs> um, called where am I? Uh-huh. Uh, have you ever read this? Uh, probably. It sounds oh, very familiar. It's so good. So it's, um, it's, it's funny. He's like, kind of like a funny dude. I And between him and Chalmers, he's a lot more digestible. Like, yeah. Yeah. I think he's more of like the, the man's like, uh, Chalmers also has that weird, like he's always wearing like a black leather jacket yeah. and like, he's, <laughs> you know, like Chalmers always reminds me of like, you know, like the, like the dad who's like, I'm still young. I'm still <laughs> yeah. hip. And you know, I like, I don't know, man. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But so there's a great Daniel Dennett short story called where am I? And the premise of the story is that, um, there's a nuclear device that's giving off some kind of radiation that will destroy neural tissue. Mm -hmm. Um, and they need someone to go disarm it. They can't use a robot for some reason. And so Dennett's character, it's all written from the first person and Dennett's character volunteers to 
put his brain in a vat and hook it up with all these electrodes and like, you know, radio it to his body so that he can still control his body. You know, like all the connections are still there between his brain and his body, but just his brain's in a vat in the lab. Yeah. And, you know, he talks about seeing his brain and like Mm -hmm. that being weird and then them cutting off the radio signal, you know, and all that sort of stuff. And he goes to disarm the bomb and while he's disarming the bomb, his body gets crushed. (laughs) Uh, And then I think they have like a they built like a robot for him. So it like does all the same stuff as his body, yeah. but he's like, is this still me? And then like his brain gets backed up into a computer that yeah. then gets like out of sync by like one second yeah. with his brain. Cause they, yeah. and it's, it just does a really good job, you know, sort of like you're saying with like the thought experiments earlier, it does a really good job of like kind of walking through like bit by bit, like, yeah. okay. So you think your, your consciousness is in your brain. Yeah. Great. What if we took your brain out of your body? What about that? You know, yeah. like what if we gave you a different body, but yeah. all these connections are the same. And it, um, it just does a really good job of, I think, exposing like the squishiness of consciousness as a concept and also challenging what, what you think is you, you know, like, and what you hold dear about your identity. I do remember reading that actually. It's great. Yeah. It's, it, I go back and reread it a lot. It's like one of my favorite short stories because it's such good brain candy. Yeah. And it was a big gateway into like his theory, which... I don't know if he's still holding on to it or if he's moved, he's moved past it, but he had this big like, um, theory called like model drafts theory, which mm-hmm. was basically like when you're taking in information, like the rate you're experiencing it is not present. It's always a little delayed because your brain is like choosing like what to see and to play back to you so you can make your choices. Mm-hmm. Um, which was like interesting, but also like very convoluted. That I'd be like, <laughs> okay, kind of get this. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, so is basically like the crux of the theory. Like your crux, fuck me. Uh, <laughs> that you're kind of on like a little bit of a time delay from the rest of the world. Yeah, is that like that everybody is basically? And that kind of syncs up with the thing we were saying earlier about like the yeah. finger taps. Yeah. Like you know, like yeah. it takes time to process this stuff. Yeah. Well, I even noticed when you told me that I did move my index and then I, but I like second guessed myself to be like, wait, is that my index? Yes, that is. <laughs> so it was like, there was something already like that. I wouldn't say was me. That was like, yeah, there you go. Like, yeah. and then the part that was me was like, now I'm consciously aware that I'm tapping it. I am. Um, you, you know what I think is really interesting is I, I used to play a lot of Tetris. <laughs> like, like, and when I say a lot, I mean, literally like two or three hours a day of, of Tetris, you I've know, heard of this phenomenon. Um, people playing Tetris for hours, man. And it's, it's addictive. and so I had a, uh, this, this is going to be windy and I'm probably going to lose the original thread cause I'm, I, <laughs> I'm out of it. But, uh, so I had a religion professor in college who was a Buddhist and I, I was in a class called Zen in the West and he was talking about, um, this Buddhist who came to the West and was like, you know, uh, enlightenment is not meditation is not the only route to enlightenment. That's how some people do it in the East, but like, it's really just about engaging with the moment. And, you know, he gave the example, uh, of like running. He was like, you know, if you run for long enough, like you can get into that, that same kind of trance. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and like, and so for me, like I would play Tetris and get to, a point where it was Tetris for the N64, okay. the new Tetris, which I think is the superior version of Tetris to wow, all the other Tetrises. Wow. <laughs> um, and I would have, I would have rounds, an individual round of Tetris that would go on for like 90 minutes. And wow. it would, it gets to a point where it's moving so fast that if you think about how to, 
if you take the time to think about what you're doing, yeah. you fuck it up. You yeah, know, and yeah. I think this is an, a phenomenon that for those of us who improvise, we're also familiar with from improvising where it's like yeah. the times where it kind of flows through you are the yeah. times where it's easy. And the times where you're going like, should I do a tag in, you know, like that's, <laughs> that's when it gets tough. Yeah. Um, so that's like achieving flow consciousness. Yeah. And I think like in those moments, it's what, what you are what you actually are is exposed to you a little bit more, you know, in in your reflex machine. And I think that in a lot of situations, you know, like you were saying earlier, like, you know, we don't spend nearly as much time looking for fucking food as we used to, you know, like, and looking up information now. Yeah. And I think a lot of, I love the modern world. I'm I'm not a primitivist, but, uh, (laughs) you know, I think a lot of these things, these time-saving conveniences and stuff like that, like they've reduced the need to be in that constant, just reacting to what's going on right now. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's opened us up to do a little bit more future planning. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's opened us up to do planning for stuff that doesn't directly affect us. You know, like I gave money to Puerto Rico because yeah. somebody has to, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, so when it gets <laughs> fixed, I get credit, uh, <laughs> but you know, it, it, it opens us up to care about things that aren't so immediate, but right. I think that I think that that's a comparatively recent phenomenon. And I think that when you look at neurologically what it is, I think, you know, we're, we're much more built for a much more kind of immediate, like, what am I doing right now? I think the activities where your, your concerns, be they, what do I do with this squiggly red piece? Or, you know, like, holy shit, I'm rock climbing. And if I don't like get the next grip, I'm literally going to die. You know, I think these experiences that kind of force you back into a more immediate sense of thing, a sense of self, I think that's actually a, I think that's a truer version of, of what consciousness is. And I I think those are the times when your default mode network goes away. Those are the times when you just kind of react with the world and feel this kind of weird unity with it because it's, I'm just doing this because that's happening. And I think, I think that's a much truer experience of what consciousness is and what we have been trying for so long to identify is actually this like comparatively recent evolutionary thing where it's like, yeah, you don't have to deal with food. Like, yeah, that's why you're, that's why you're wondering like, you know, like, oh, am I going to like stick with Netflix? They raised the price again by a dollar. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. like, it doesn't, you know, it's not that it doesn't matter. You yeah. choose what has meaning, but, um, but no, I, that yeah. lack of immediacy, I think is like something weird and recent that has muddied the study of consciousness. Yeah. It also makes me think like, maybe we'll move away from this idea. Like consciousness is this singular entity. Like yeah. maybe we, maybe there are several types of consciousness yeah. within us at all times where it's like, there's like the survival, like you know, oh shit, a hurricane just hit and destroyed my house. Like I need to go find people and survive. Mm -hmm. And then like, that's all you can think about where, you know, it's like, oh, we're sitting in an air conditioned room right now. Like we've, we're not hungry. Our basic needs are met. We're just talking about consciousness because we have the privilege to talk about consciousness (laughs) right now. Um, so that's like maybe lighting up like a different like type that, you know, maybe, uh, more privileged animals like get mm-hmm. to experience. Maybe we get to evolve into because we can. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, you know, and I, I look at, um, going back to octopuses who I think are such a fascinating, um, point they're of comparison the yeah. because they're, they're fascinating. And our, I think our closest ancestor was like a, basically like a jellyfish looking thing, you know, yeah. like 600 million years ago or something like that. Um, but, uh, they get bored. 
they get bored. Like <laughs> if you have an octopus in an aquarium, like yeah. they literally give them Rubik's cubes and toys to play with because they get bored, you know, yeah. or, or like dolphins, dolphins play, like yeah, dolphins yeah. play, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, I think that those cases of like things that aren't directly tied to survival are so fascinating and so interesting because it's like, yeah, so what is that? How was yeah. that selected for? What's going on there? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And why are we like, why? Like if we were just computers, we would just be like, oh, needs are met. Shut off until yeah. we need to. Oh, so here's, here's the thing off of computers. So, yeah. um, I think it, it's pretty common now, but it's still sort of mind blowing. Like a couple of years ago, uh, you know, Google had that image recognition thing that it started running in reverse. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it would create these like hallucinatory, like landscapes built out of like dogs faces and that sort of thing. Have you ever <laughs> seen this? Shit. Uh, I don't think so. It's have to Google so this. <laughs> cool. Um, it's called deep dream. Uh, deep dream. but you can, you can go through deep dream does, I think a very good job of simulating how the brain processes visual information and assembles a theory about what's, what's going on, Mm -hmm. um, external in the world. And, you know, there's videos online where you can go through and go like, okay, so we're going to, we're going to watch in this video, deep dream process, random noise and start by looking for, um, uh, areas of high contrast between light and dark, then move to areas where, uh, those areas of contrast line up and try to make contours. Then it's going to try to assign, um, identities to those contours and shapes. And you can watch this thing trip itself out. Wow. Um, but there's a lot of phenomenon like that, that we could, that, you know, the, uh, the recent go championship was a big example Mm -hmm. of this where, you know, they built a computer that beat somebody at go deep blue was a big version version of this when I was a kid with, um, IBM beating Gary Kasparov in chess, you yeah. know, yeah. uh, the Watson playing jeopardy, you know, we keep, we keep going like, there's no way a computer could do this, yeah, you know, yeah. and then it does it. Yeah. And rather than taking the conclusion of like, well, maybe what we're doing isn't so special. We just move the bars. We're like, yeah, well it did that, <laughs> but you know, it's yeah. Well, like, yeah, that reminds me of like computers writing jokes, like doing comedy. Yeah, yeah. Like, and how at first it was like, oh, haha, stupid computer. Like, this is not funny. Like, this yeah. is just bad logic. And then like, someone's like, okay, let me fix that. And then all of a sudden it started writing like pretty solid jokes. Yeah. <laughs> I follow a couple bots on Twitter. Uh-huh. Um, uh, one of them is Soft Landscapes. Uh, <laughs> Another Did is, the computer choose its name? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but so Soft Landscapes is basically a bot that just creates these like almost like watercolory, like like faded like purples and green hills mm-hmm. and that sort yeah. of thing. But if 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 you showed that to somebody mm-hmm. and didn't tell them it was a bot, yeah. you'd be like, yeah, a person made that, you know? Yeah, like, yeah. Um, and there's another one that's called, I think, Newfound Planet uh, okay. <laughs> that just like spits out descriptions of like random planets that, and some of them are like very like, like kind of like artsy, you know, wow. like and like poetic and wow. like kind of like tragically beautiful, you know, which is like sort of neat. Yeah. Um, and there's another one I really love called Crooked Cosmos that's less complex, um, but just uh, just takes images of like planets and nebula and stuff and just glitches them up. But like mm-hmm. with all of these things, like I know that they're bots. And so it's easy for me to be dismissive and go like, it's less complex. Yeah. But if a friend of mine came to me and showed me those exact same images, I'd be like, you're yeah. a fucking genius. You know, yeah, like, I don't yeah. know how you do this, you know? <laughs> um, 
Yeah. I also, I also like that each one is different. Like an individual, it's not producing the same thing. There's a huge, there's a vast world of Twitter bots that are doing, like there's a one that generates fake moths. (laughs) Um, That's really cool. There's one I follow that uh, is like a, you know, a a deep learning network that, uh, that goes through um, Moby Dick and then generates fake Moby Dick quotes. uh, And they're like spot on, you know, they're in the style, you know? And, and so there's just a lot of stuff like this and, and, and less, um, less controversial examples of this are like, you know, there was an art show not too long ago where all the paintings had been done by chimpanzees. Oh, okay. Um, Yeah. And art critics came in and was like, oh, this the the passion here, you know, did and they, that sort of did thing. Did they know that chimpanzees had done the... No, no, okay, you know, okay. but so, <laughs> so I think a lot of this too is like, you know, going back to this notion of like human exceptionalism is like, we, we can be fooled into, yeah. you know, and Elon Musk recently put a poker playing robot online. <clears throat> Nobody knew, you know, like yeah. we, we can be fooled into thinking that something behaves as conscious in something that we just designed to process information. We know exactly what's going on. Um, and I think that that, the, the uneasy, but I think the, the conclusion that you kind of have to accept from that is that there's not really a thing there, you know, like, or I think either you have to accept that like our notion of subjective experience is fundamentally not different than just this information processing Or you have to accept that there is a kind of subjective experience going on in these little bots. And and it might be minor. It might be comparable to the subjective experience of a beetle or something like Mm -hmm. that. But it's there. And I think both of those are pretty uneasy and hard conclusions to accept. I don't know if I fully accept either one. Right. But I think the evidence points to one or possibly both of those things being, you know, I don't, I don't yeah. know that, that like gets into an area where I really don't, yeah. I truly don't know what I think about it. Yeah. 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 Cause you can't go to like one of those Twitter bots and be like, that's, it's conscious. Like here is where it's consciously thinking, Yeah, you know? Yeah. But you can't deny like what it's creating is yeah. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's super cool. Yeah. I also like the idea of when humans are wiped out, uh, they're just tweeting and retreating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. They'll be going for a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Um, do you think there, is there anything else you think we should touch upon or? Oh, man. Um, <laughs> it's just like a very. I think drugs are worth mentioning real quick. Okay, Honestly, yeah. yeah like I, um, and this this gets into very much territory where I'm going to say things that I don't necessarily agree with, but I think they're, I, I, they, they challenge me and I think that they're worth thinking about. Um, but so, you know, drugs, drugs are fun and weird. Um, and there's this guy, Terrence McKenna, who I think he was like an anthropologist, but he was like, you know, one of these guys who pushed this theory forward that, um, uh, apes and hallucinogenic mushrooms like co-evolved and, Mm -hmm. you know, we owe our evolution and our awareness to, to mushrooms and that sort of stuff. And I, I've read his stuff on it and I think it's compelling. Uh, I don't necessarily fully buy it, but I think it's compelling. Um, and he has this thing where he's like, you know, when you look through a telescope, Mm -hmm. it expands, it's, it expands your sensorium in the same way a spider's web does. Right. Like, and you accept what you see through the end of that telescope as being real, you know, Mm -hmm. like we, we 
you know, I routinely retweet images of stuff from billions of light years away in the universe that I accept as real, not because I've experienced it directly, um, but because, uh, we saw it through this weird machine, right. you know, and I, I accept it as a real part of my universe, not as part of that machine's universe, you right. know, that I got yeah. a glimpse of. And Terrence McKenna's thing that I find challenging but compelling is when we when we use something like mushrooms or we have these like intense psychedelic experiences, we brush them off as being hallucinatory. Mm-hmm. Um, but his thing is like, why don't we treat what we saw in those experiences as being as real as what we treat through telescopes. Why are we, why are we so unwilling to, and this goes back to my whole thing with like, I don't like Descartes, you know, like, cause I don't, I don't think my subjective experience is trustworthy. Right. Um, and Terrence McKenna comes at it from the other, other angle and goes like, why are we discounting this? You know, Uh like why, why would we have this experience of, you know, whatever the words you want to use for it when you're in a, a very intense psychedelic trip, why would we discount that as not being real rather than trying to study it and find out like, well, maybe what we're experiencing right now is not real. And maybe that's, yeah, the, that's we, the true thing. <laughs> yeah. And like we, we know that our brain selectively yeah. filters out a lot of information and we know that a lot of what's going on during those trips is the default mode network shutting down and yeah. our filters going away. Yeah. So why is it that when the filters are gone, we go like, nah, that's not really what it is yeah. instead of going like, well, no, maybe, maybe when the filters are up, we're, we're not getting the full, right. the full picture. Yeah. And I think in the same way that comparative studies of consciousness are really important, you know, not only in octopuses and sperm whales and sperm whales also biggest brain that's ever existed on the planet. So yeah. that's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, but I think in the same way that we, we really do need to critically think about what is, what is the consciousness like of someone who lived in ancient Greece versus what is it like to be an octopus or, or, or a whale or anything else? I think, I think drug experiences offer another point of comparison. Yeah. I'm not super comfortable with, with making the conclusion that like what you experience when you're on drugs is, is is more real than what you're not. But having had that subjective experience, I think it's interesting and certainly, yeah, I think more points of comparison will help us get to a a better idea of what is actually going on. Totally. Yeah. And it kind of makes me go think of like what we were talking earlier about how so many people want to deny that consciousness is maybe more simple than we want to believe. Yeah. Uh, and like the most common thing with drugs is like, if you're having a bad trip, it's cause you need to let go and go into like flow consciousness. Yeah. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that's, I think that's interesting. And, and going back to the deep dream stuff from a moment ago mm-hmm. with Google, like what the way in which, um, and I'll see, I'll see if I can find it and send you a link to the specific video where they, they walk through it like layer by layer. Yeah. It's something like literally like every 30 seconds, they go one layer deeper into this neural net. Wow. But it does such a good job of recreating what severe visual hallucinations are like. Mm-hmm. And there's no reason to suspect, at least based on from, from what I know of neurology, that the other kinds of hallucinations you feel when you're on um, like mushrooms or something, you know, this feeling of oneness and like, like I remember being on mushrooms and like, <laughs> I remember being like at this thing in college and I was like across a field and a tree was calling out to me. And then when I got to the tree, I was like, okay, I get this tree. You know, it's like, interesting. Yeah, I could like feel the ants crawling around on me and was yeah. like, could feel like, the flow of the universe, like back to the big bang and out beyond me, you know, like, which, yeah, yeah. Which, yeah. Neat, you know, but also (laughs) very different, you know? Um, 
Uh, but the the neural nets are very good at simulating certain aspects of visual hallucinations. And so I think it's worth going like, well, if that's how that works, then like, could they simulate like the ways in which your consciousness kind of bleeds out of you a little bit more when you're yeah. in a state like that? And I think, I think we just need more points of points of study. Yeah. 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 More, more scientists tripping. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly. Yeah. I think it's worth, I think it's worth yeah. investigating. Yeah. But I like, mean, in a, but here's my thing is, here's my thing is cause I think sometimes people go like, it's worth investigating and then they'll go like, yeah, I'll go do ayahuasca in the jungle. And yeah, it's like, yeah. Hey, do that. Yeah, yeah. But when, when I say investigate, I mean like, let's put it in a lab and see what's yeah. going on, yeah. you know? Cause the, the anecdotal story of someone going like, yeah, I saw a serpent God, you know, like yeah. doesn't do much for me, you right. know? Yeah. It's like DMT where it's like, I saw fairies. Yeah. 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 It's, it's like, like, Hey, maybe, maybe you did, but yeah. like, let's, let's bring it in a lab <laughs> and go like, okay, well what's going on in your brain yeah. when you, at the moment when you saw those fairies, yeah. let's, let's try to line up your subjective experience with like, you know, um, like an FMRI mm-hmm. or EEG or something like that yeah. so that we can link those two things together and try to compare the parts of your subjective experience that we can measure objectively to other things we can measure objectively. And that's, I, th- I think will be how we can start to crack things yeah. a little bit. Uh, that's, that's so cool and weird to think like, you have the science part to be like, objectively, this is what's happening. And then you go to the individual to say subjectively. Yeah. Yeah. What's what's going on? You're like, I can feel my teeth in my toes, (laughs) you know? And then it, yeah. And then it just goes back to like, I guess that's consciousness. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I'm, I feel conflicted because I, I'm so willing to discount. Like, I don't think time, I don't think the passage of time is a real thing either. Like, I think that's Mm -hmm. also an illusion, but I experience it, you know? And I, I think my, my personal bias might be, I'm so willing to discount my, my personal subjective experience in favor of what the book says is going on that, that maybe I've gone too far in that direction and I need to find a way to incorporate the two a little bit more. Well, I'm always fascinated with how scientists, own personal beliefs change throughout their career. Yeah. You know, like they, like in the beginning, it's like very hardcore atheist. Like yeah. Yeah. We're going to find all the, like the answers are out there. And then towards the end, they're like, I don't fucking know. Yeah. I'm going to church. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. The more, the more I read about stuff, the more I'm forced to go like the only thing I know is how ignorant I am. Yeah. Like that's. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. With all the hundreds of years, uh, but especially recently the past, like, you know, 30, 40 years of studying consciousness at the end of the day, everyone's like, I don't know. Yeah. Like, yeah. What do you think? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's fascinating and interesting. And I, I think one of the things that's so rewarding about reading about it and thinking about it is like it, it going back to Tetris, like one of the things that's fun about <laughs> Tetris is like, you'll never win. You'll yeah. never beat it. You'll never beat Tetris. Right. You know, like the only you can get better at it. You can get a little further, but mm-hmm. there's no end there, you know? Yeah. And I think in the same way with consciousness, like we might never figure it out. We, I, I really think it's possible. We might never figure it out, Yeah. but I, I not in a fatalistic way in a way where it's like, well, let's see if we can get like a little bit further. Let's see yeah. if we can get a couple more lines than we yeah. did last time. Yeah. Oh, that's like my favorite part about science, like yeah. big problems. It's like, Oh, I'm not going to figure this out in my lifetime, but maybe I could leave a little post-it note yeah, yeah, yeah. for someone a hundred yeah. years from now to be like, Ooh, yeah, like, this, Ooh this is neat. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Totally. To just get that thinking, like to give the next generation a head start on that line of thinking, Yeah, which is fascinating. And that's a cool collective consciousness thing happening. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. I, don't I read, know. A, I read a really great book called, um, 
uh, Darwin Machines and the Nature of Knowledge by a guy named Henry Plotkin. Mm -hmm. And his argument is basically that uh, it's an, it's an epistemology. So epistemology is the study of knowledge and mm -hmm. what, what is knowledge, you know, yeah. and that sort of stuff, um, which is very interesting, but also easily one of the most pretentious of <laughs> philosophies, you know, like, how do you know what you oh, know? You know, yeah. like, well, I remember in starting off in philosophy and that word gets thrown around so much. Oh my God. People it's, it, you know what it is? <laughs> it's like a, uh, you know, it's like someone's dad gave them a sharp knife yeah. and they're like, check it out. You yeah, know, like, yeah. I can carve my name in a table, you yeah, know? And, yeah. But, um, but so this guy's, this guy, Henry Plotkin's theory, and I, I don't know the context of him well enough to know how much, who he's building off of and that sort of stuff. But is that when you look at any animal, um, what you see in the physical expression of that species is a bit of condensed knowledge about the environment in which they evolved. Mm -hmm. So for instance, a human skeleton, like, you know, the curve of your spine and the density of your bones and all that stuff, like is a form of knowledge about, you know, like what, what the gravity of earth is, you know, like you would have a very different body if you grew up on a different planet, you right. know, like, yeah. and the structure of your lungs speaks to the atmosphere that those lungs evolved in and yeah. that sort of stuff. And, you know, within every, um, species, there's a certain amount of flexibility in a genome, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, that's why like there's some humans who run faster than others, you know, yeah. and, and that sort of thing. Um, and I'm going to, I'm going to fuck up his core theory, but basically he has like this thing about like first order flexibility, which is the zero order flexibility is the flexibility evolution, uh, evolution exhibits over the course of evolutionary time to adapt towards a new, um, environment. And he's very, he's not advocating for any kind of like evolutionary consciousness or intelligent design or anything. Right. He's just saying like, there's a kind of flexibility here, you know, um, and then the second flexibility is the flexibility of any individual, um, animal to respond to its immediate environment mm -hmm. and to develop in a different way than the other animals around it. Right. Yeah. Like, and that's, that's where the core of evolution comes from. At some point, something learned to breathe oxygen and now a whole bunch of us can, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and then this higher order flexibility that we see in humans and primates is this flexibility of being able to then alter your environment, you know, and, and mm -hmm. evolve in response to that. And it's, it just does a very good job of taking this, this thing that we feel this, this consciousness, this problem solving that I think is also people think of as a hallmark of intelligence and consciousness and gets mm -hmm. into that, that muddy semantic area. Um, but it does a very good job of tracing that back just down to evolution and random processes. And like, yeah, you know, I, I don't think, I, I think, I think it's just very difficult for people to accept that there was never any grand scheme, you yeah. know, like, and there's nothing special about where we are now. Yeah. And, yeah, um, but yeah, yeah. Darwin machines and the nature of knowledge by Henry Plotkin. Very good. Very, very good. Yeah. Definitely check him out. Yeah. And it makes me think of a scientist that I can't remember the name, mm -hmm, of, mm -hmm. but, um, he, his work is just basically showing that how deterministic our thinking is like, because of our, just even our biological state, like whatever condition it is affects our, our decisions. Mm -hmm. Um, even if we think we're like, no, I'm choosing to make the decision, but it could be like, Hey, you're probably just hungry. Yeah. 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 It's like so sad, but like, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, there's another great book by uh, <laughs> Antonio Damasio, who's like a well well regarded cognitive. Um, he's like a philosopher and neuroscientist, but called Descartes' error. And like mm. you know, fuck you, Descartes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but you know, his whole thing is we we have this notion of like you know, there's a, a, an emotional self and a rational self, you mm-hmm. know, and emotions get in the way of rationality. And, uh, and that was like a very Cartesian kind of, kind of thinking, yeah. um, that like, you know, there was the animal self, which was kind of like emotional, but then man was able to rise above it with rationality, right. you know, yeah, and, and yeah. that sort of thing. <laughs> and, um, Damasio's whole thing is like, no, nah, like your, your emotions evolved in tandem with everything else and it's all mixed up. And, yeah. you know, there's no, um, the stuff that we, we think is logical still has like a deep emotional component to mm-hmm. it, you know? And he, he does this like very simple thought experiment of like, if you put a blue pen and a black pen on a table in front of somebody and ask them just to like pick one up and write with it. And then you ask them like, well, why, why yeah. did you choose that one instead of that one? There's no, there's no rational reason to choose a yeah. blue pen over a black pen, mm-hmm. you know, like I know that I only write in blue ink because black ink always makes it feel like the page is shouting at me, like some kind of awful. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. You know, like handwriting synesthesia. Um, yeah. The answer I could just give you was, oh, I, I like the color blue. Yeah. But that's what it is most of the time. Like, is, I like this one. Yeah. You know, I like it's, it. there's not really um, a rationality behind it. And so his thing isn't that rationality is a false concept. His thing is that it's tied into this, this kind of emotional. Yeah. Uh, system. That's really interesting because I feel like our society right now is a little emotionally detached, Yeah, which we're showing is actually very unhealthy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. I don't know. That was just a, a little. Yeah. I mean, it's also <laughs> interesting, like right now, like at least for me, like I can feel myself actively detaching. Cause it's like, you'll hop on yeah. Twitter and you know, you'll be like, Oh, what, oh, what did they do yeah. now? You know, like, yeah. and so I just like, I don't care. I don't care. I can't care about everything. I don't have the energy to care about everything. So I'm just going to care about none of it, you know, like, which is, which is weird. And is, you know, I think I'm a little bit more prone than most people to like, like this is something that makes me feel very bad about myself, like genuinely, (laughs) but like whenever there's like a video of like, you know, uh, like, you know, the video from Vegas or something like of that concert where you just hear like the gunfire or whatever, like I can watch it. Yeah. I can watch it and just be like, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. You know, like that I don't happened. have any kind yeah. of, you know, um, which terrifies me. Uh, right. But, but I, but yeah, I think there is like, there's a numbness, I think you know? there is a numbness that, you know, like is there. And then, yeah. And then once in a while, like maybe there is like a video services that maybe you have never seen before and how that viscerally affects you. Yeah. I mean, like I remember yeah. Charlottesville, like I, you know, I watched the video of the car and going like, yeah, it's bad. Yeah. You know, like, but yeah. it doesn't, I, I'm not horrified by it, which, right. which makes me feel bad about myself. I'm not trying, I'm in no, no way trying no, no, to no. boast like, yeah. I'll watch a beheading video, <laughs> you know, like it's, that's, that's not the point. But yeah, I think speaking to that thing about like, you know, detachment, I think there is a, again, this sort of like Cartesian notion. And and I think going further than him, just like Mm -hmm. so much of modern culture, I think was defined heavily during the enlightenment. And it was this age where like rationality was like, kind of like a, uh, a reaction to the years and years and years of spirituality and forced spirituality of, of the Catholic church's reign. Um, and I think like it's, 
it's bled into a lot of us by going like, well, if I'm rational about something, that means I'm better than the people right. who are having the I'm emotional the reaction. Decision, right. And I don't, I don't think that's true. And I, I say yeah. that as somebody who like sees people have, like, I see people like, like I have a friend who, who's like a musician and like mm-hmm. he was talking to me the other day about like a song lyric he really liked. Yeah. And I remember going like, what does that mean? And he's like, well, it's just like, you know, when you're a kid, like things are kind of easier. And I was like, why don't they just say that? You know, like, and it's like, <laughs> yeah. you know, like I don't have like, when I go into uh, I've, I've only recently started being able to go to like an art museum and like respond to art the way I think people are supposed to respond yeah. to it. You know, like normally I'm like, what is just yeah. paint? Just say you're sad, <laughs> you yeah, know, like, yeah. um, I, but I also love the idea of you thinking there's an idea of how you're supposed to react. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah. And so <laughs> well, I think my, I think my father genuinely thinks he failed as a parent because I don't, because I don't like poetry. Um, and I was having a conversation with him like a few years ago about it. And I was like, yeah, I just don't, I don't get it. Like, I don't mm-hmm. get it. And he's like, you're not supposed to get it. And I was like, well, in that case, I get it better than anyone else. You know? And it's like, I don't, Yeah. you know, I, I read, I was reading a Richard Feynman book recently and in it, he says, poets don't write to be understood. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, that makes me kind of get it. But, yeah. but you know, it's, it's, again, it goes back to this whole idea of like, I'm, I'm doubting my subjective experience as yeah. being the wrong one yeah. as if there's a proper subjective experience to have when you're in an art museum or when you're watching a video of something horrible. Yeah. And, and, you know, but I'm, I'm so willing to just go like, that can't be right. You know, yeah. and maybe, maybe I'm discounting it too quickly and maybe taking more of the subjective experience into account would help illuminate some of these areas of my thinking on consciousness that I feel either conflicted by or not, or not super rock yeah. solid on. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I don't know. I don't know either, but I think that's really interesting because it does seem to be this like internal conflict between collective consciousness and then maybe what your true state of being is. I'm yep. like, I don't get it. I don't like it. Oh shit. But the group likes it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so maybe, maybe uh, there's some error in my like beliefs or if I filter it down enough, I will understand it. It's easier for me to believe that I'm wrong and everyone <laughs> else is right. You know, it's like, it's like, I get, I get really ticked off when I drive. Uh-huh. Um, you know, but I don't, I'm not like an aggressive, you know, like I'll keep it in the car. Like that's my rule yeah. is I have to keep it in the car. I yeah. can't, I can't like tailgate somebody cause right. I'm annoyed at them, you know? Yeah. Um, but it's easier for me to believe that I'm irritable than it is for me to believe that everybody's an insane driver, you, right. you know, like yeah, and in yeah. the same way, like it's easier for me to believe that I'm wrong about my subjective experience uh-huh. than to believe that everyone else is the one who doesn't get yeah. it, you know, it's, but I don't know if that's, is that, yeah. I don't know if this is too personal, but do you think that's like some sort of coping mechanism or some sort of like psychological, like exercise that you, someone told you down the line? That's like, oh, if you're having this emotional, like negative reaction, do this to like be able to calm yourself down. I mean, maybe like I, I have like an anxiety disorder, you know, mm-hmm. so it's like. So, you know, I think for years before I was diagnosed with it, it was just like, the world is fucking insane (laughs) and you're all insane for not freaking out about it. You know, like like that sort of a thing. And I think for the past like decade or so, since I've been aware of it and been in therapy and stuff, like, I think there has been a lot of me going like, no, it's probably just me, (laughs) you know? Um, So I don't, you know, uh, again, I don't really know, but I, I do think that like, my personal bullshit, as does everybody's, Everyone's is actively yeah. interfering with my ability to yeah. get a get a good grip on what's yeah. actually going on. And that's like 
why science exists is how can we view this objectively yeah. because we're all we're all muddy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and consciousness is one of the places that really you know, the dominant philosophy of science right now is uh, something called falsification, wherein the way we draw a line between what is science and what is not is we say that something is a scientific theory if you can find a way to disprove it. Mm. And technically, uh, under that paradigm, what science does is not to say what is true. It simply says what isn't false. Uh-huh. Um, and we say that, and you know, and so we say that something isn't scientific if you can't come up with a way to falsify that that belief. So, you know, with something like consciousness, it's very tricky because it's tough to say like, well, if we discover X, Y, or Z, then this must be false about consciousness. You know, like like with the finger tapping thing, like yeah, we've yeah. we've done that study in a lab. Um, but people's subjective experience is like, but I I know this isn't the case because yeah. I don't experience it that way. Really gets in in our way of saying this, and it's difficult to say to somebody, what piece of evidence could I give you to convince you that you aren't conscious? Right. You know, and. Oof. Cause they would have to experience that evidence consciously, yeah. you know? And so the whole, the whole thing is really in a very gray area with yeah. our, our current understanding of what science is and how it works. Yeah. Fun. Yeah. Fun. <laughs> cool. Um, anything else? Your brain hurt? No. Yeah. I'm, yeah. Uh, yeah. My brain does hurt. It's been doing like a little bit of flip flops. No, I think we've covered quite a, quite a bit of ground, Mm -hmm. maybe just like, just so they're all in one place, like a couple of book recommendations that I think are are good. Like I think the illusion of conscious will by Daniel Wegener, I think it is Mm -hmm. W E G E N E R, um, is very good. Uh, I think that, um, neurophilosophy by Patricia Churchland is fantastic, but the first like 200 pages of it are (laughs) the first 200 pages of it are the shit that I skipped all the time when I would be reading stuff in college. It's all like the exact ions channels and like all that sort of stuff. That's like very dense. Um, but I think that, I think that you could probably skip that and still appreciate what she's saying in the rest of the book. Um, I think species of mind, I can't remember the author's names, um, but species of mind gets into the evolution of mind. I think Mm -hmm. that's very good. I think wet mind by, uh, and Koenig is for me, the gold standard of the computationalist view of consciousness and, and, and how the brain works. Um, there's a textbook that is shockingly readable called behavioral neurobiology. Um, and the author's last name is Carew, C-A-R-E-W that I think also is like a good, pretty deep dive into, um, comparative, uh, uh, studies of, of consciousness. I think the, the book by Peter Godfrey Smith about <laughs> octopuses yeah. that came out like a year ago. I can't remember the title of it. Yeah. It's killing me uh, <laughs> is, is great. And it uses octopuses to explore consciousness. Yeah. Like he's not a biologist. He's a philosopher, but awesome. he just got obsessed with octopuses yeah. and talks about oh, them I'm a lot. I'm definitely going to read about that. It's, it's I'm really good. With octopuses. They're so fascinating. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I think that's it. I mean, like there's a, there's a great book called the, cultural lives of whales and dolphins 
um, and the author's names are Rendell and Whitehead, I think, mm-hmm. um, that gets into, it makes a good argument for what what is culture and, and do we see it in these other species? But yeah. I, I think the core point with all, oh, and also do mushrooms. Uh, <laughs> but I, I think the core thing with all of this is like, if you're, if you're interested in consciousness, I think you're doing yourself a disservice by only looking at it from a human perspective. Right, totally. I think it's, I think it's illuminating to look at machines and other animals and just try to see what the common threads are there. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Thanks so much for coming on. All right. Of course. And that's our show. Thank you, Berg, for coming on. That was amazing. Guys, check out Alex Berg at UCB performing on Sentimental Lady. And also keep an eye out for his very cool science show, Science Time. Follow him on Twitter at ActuallyBerg for all your fun science needs and finding out when shows are also go follow those bots on twitter i know i'm going to also in show notes i went and hunted and found all the books and reading that berg recommended so boom just go straight to notes and you can start reading and checking out some of these great books remember if you're shopping on amazon go to boardwalkaudio.com slash dumb nerds click on our supporter artist button it'll take you straight to amazon so you can shop like you normally would i'm your host cassie jerkins you can follow me on twitter and instagram at cassie jerkins have a great week bye a Boardwalk Audio podcast. For more information and shows, visit BoardwalkAudio.com. Don't forget to rate and subscribe now.